Matthew chapter 6, we're dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, it's interesting where it's placed. As Jesus is talking in this sermon, and he's sharing different details about the sermon, what he's doing is he's talked about in previous uh, verses, prior to what we're going to read in Matthew chapter 6 in a minute, he has talked about how do you respond to enemies who hurt you? How do you respond to individuals who attack you? How do you respond to those who would persecute you? He's talked about that in Matthew chapter 5. And after he's given some principles of what to do, he knows how difficult it is. He focuses in on praying. And he talks to the believers about, you're going to have to pray. Well, we have to pray in order to respond rightfully to those who would attack us. But people often pray in wrong fashion, and they did in his day. So he's talking about, in verse 5 of Matthew 6, when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites who pray. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. For verily I say, they have the reward. But you, when you pray, enter into a private place, a closet. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father which is in secret. And your Father which sees in secret will reward you openly. When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they're going to be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your heavenly Father knows what things you have need of before you ask. So after this manner, therefore pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's, let's make these conclusions that we've said several times already in the last weeks. Jesus wants us all to pray. There's no exceptions in this room by age, by gender, by occupation, by education, by status, by wealth. You and I, we're all supposed to be praying. But he didn't stop there. What Jesus does is he gives us an effective way of praying. He gives us advice. He gives us counsel. He is the loving parent who wants to train their child to drive wants them to have that ability, so they teach them how to do that. They want their child to be able to read, so they take the time to teach them how to pronounce and how to recognize. Jesus, the loving parent, says, I want you to do something that is critical in your daily walk, your daily life. I want you to pray, but I'm going to tell you how to pray. And he gives us lots of important, different data, different instruction. But the one that we're dealing with today is really difficult. I think it's far more difficult than what a lot of us, me included, think firsthand. You see, as he's winding down, he's talking about different aspects of relying upon him and how we need to make certain requests. And the requests are very simple. The requests are, give us this day of this daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, what he talks about is forgiveness. And there's an aspect of forgiveness that is real easy for us. It's the forgiveness that we get from God Almighty. Now, he's mentioned that. Forgive us our debts. If we were just to take that phrase, though we talked about it in depth for the entire Sunday morning last week, let's just refresh our minds a little bit. What, what do we notice right away? Forgive us our debts. We notice that we all need this forgiveness from God. We all need it because we all sin. We all have a problem. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes those who are real moral. That includes some who aren't so moral. That includes older and younger. That includes preachers and includes pew sitters. 
All of us need this forgiveness. In fact, Jesus even goes on with his disciples and he tells them that night before he died, he says, you need to be, be washed. And he washes their feet and they say, we don't understand this. And last week we talked about how he explains that you, by picture of this washing of your feet, you have been cleansed all over. You don't need a whole bath every time you go outdoors, but you who walk in the sandals and the dirt and dust of the Palestinian roads, you need to rinse off your feet from your everyday living. And he used that as a picture spiritually that every day we need to rinse off in his cleansing by going to him and asking for forgiveness for our daily sins. Not to be saved all over because once we've accepted Christ, he's given us eternal life. But as his children, part of his family, like a parent with a child, there's times that the relationship has been established, but there is fellowship broken. And so we need to get that cleansing. In history, I think I've told you this story before years ago, similarwise. An Austrian doctor, back in the early 1800s, he was working with in a hospital where they did a lot of baby delivering. But his concern was that a lot of people died of what they called childbed fever, a lot of the moms. And so many of them died. And part of the reason was that the doctor's schedule, early in the morning, they would go down to the morgue. They would do the dissecting. And they would do all that work of trying to figure out why the person died and learn and enhance their medical abilities. But then they would go upstairs in that same hospital. And they wouldn't wash their hands. They'd wipe them off, but they wouldn't rinse them off. And Samwise came to a point where he said, you know, there's a big difference. We, I think what we're doing is the reason that one out of six ladies giving birth in this hospital were dying at that time. He says, I think it's because we're carrying something from downstairs in the morgue up to where we're dealing with these ladies and we're causing this fever. So he started instituting with, in his personal practice, washing his hands after he dealt with a dead body. Then washing between patients. Look at the stats that we give you. Out of the 8,500 babies he delivered, that he only lost 184 moms. In that day, that was incredible. That was amazing, where they were on a 1 to 6 ratio, otherwise dying. So Samwise promoted this. He was ridiculed, he was berated. The pressure came so much that he lost his job. He was put out of the doctoring business. He ended up in an insane asylum before he died. Only years and decades later did people realize the importance of cleansing themselves from in the medical profession, and now he's heroic and has a stamp and has a statue. There are people who sit in churches who may mock and ridicule the idea of every day going and getting confession, taking time to pray because they don't need it. They're okay. And the disease of sin is taking away their joy and their thrill and their zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I need to confess. We are asked to come and confess so that we can get forgiveness because forgiveness is needed by all of us. It is available to all of us. At any time, we can go to the Lord. That's the amazing part. He's saying, when you all, any of you pray, pray this fashion, we all need it. We can all do it at any time. We don't have to get the busy signal with God. We never lose contact. We had towers going up behind Boscov's this week, apparently screwing up with our, some of our uh, cell phone. That all of a sudden, at different parts of the building, we had been all along, and all of a sudden this week, we couldn't get any signals. We had to go outside to get signals with our cell phone. We never get screwed up with our signal with God where we lose contact with him, where, you know, that old commercial used to be, can you hear me now? It's never like that with God. We can go anytime, any to any place by going directly to God. I think this is a thrill for me because I grew up in a place and a time and in a church that said, in order to have my sins forgiven, I had to go through a priest. 
And that's what the idea of a priest is, somebody who's a go-between. The other night after I preached the funeral service, I had a young man come up, and he was talking to me and kept on calling me father, and then he called me a priest. I understood where he was coming from. He was coming from a different spot where he was told you have to go through a person in order to get forgiveness. And if you don't go through a person, a clergyman, a priest, or a reverend, you can't go to God and get forgiveness. Well, that's just not true. Isn't it a thrill? You don't have to share your sins with anybody else. You can go directly to God in prayer. That's a blessing. That's a thrill. Should give you something else that stands out? According to what we read in this text, where Jesus is speaking and inviting all of us to come and say, forgive us our, de- our debts, he is saying God is willing and ready to forgive. That God wants to forgive. Well, we talked about that last week, so I'm not going to belabor that point anymore. But let's make this observation that it didn't relay. God is willing to forgive repeatedly. He says in this passage, verse 7, when you pray over and over again. He says in this passage, in verse 9, therefore after this manner, pray over and over again. He says in this passage, give us our daily bread. The idea is this is an everyday, day after day type of prayer that you can pray. So is forgive us our sins. We can go to God repeatedly. We can come back to him and say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. On a daily basis, he is willing to deal with us, to hear us, and to forgive us our sins. I am so glad he never gets sick and tired of us, that he allows us to come back. God requires mere confession for us to be forgiven. Simple words. He says, here's what the way you pray. Father, forgive us our debts. He doesn't require us to do a whole bunch of different things. It's merely confession. The idea of this confession is real simple. The idea of confession is to do this, to say the same thing about something. You confess with somebody else on a regular basis. You're making an observation. You're making an evaluation. You say, this is, and then you make the conclusions. He's saying that when you pray, you're supposed to confess with me. You're supposed to agree with me that your loss of temper was wrong. You're supposed to agree with me that your lack of respect to your parents is wrong. It is sin. I want you to agree with me that your lack of of integrity, you're lying about something, you're cheating on something, it is sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a necessity. It is wrong. Your, your, your greed or your anxieties or your worries or your giving in to, an, uh, to a habit that is pro, uh, prohibited in Scripture. He says, you have to agree. That's what this is about, is saying the same thing. It does involve repentance. It does involve and include the idea of, I am grieved over what I have done. I am sorry for what I have done. Not, not just that I've been caught in some cases, but I'm sorry I did it. I'm sorry that I lost my temper. I am really regretting that I spoke disrespectfully. I'm really regretting that I gossiped about you. I'm really regretting that I didn't show compassion to you. He says that's part of this confession. Part of this confession that he's talking about is being specific. Where in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we talked about last week, if we confess our sins, it is identifying and being very, very pointed about it and taking ownership and not just saying, well, I can't help it and it's somebody else's fault. No, it is saying it is my fault. I did this. And as we identify it, and grieve over it, we will have the reckoning in our mind that we don't want to do it again. That's part of that repentance idea. That's all he requires. That's it. He doesn't require us to go and do some type of penance, 
do some Lenten resolution to get forgiveness. He doesn't say because of our sin, you can confess it, but I want to stick you in a purgatory for a period of time, whether in this life or the next. That you have to do some type of suffering for your sin. No, he's already suffered for it all. That's the beauty of the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He paid for all of our sins. That's the beauty of the phrase, it is finished. It is paid in That includes our sins that we do on a daily basis. He paid for them, but we need to confess it and ask him to apply that that forgiveness to our account. But what happens? What happens, some of you might think and some of you might say, doesn't this idea, and we've been accused of this as a church, this idea that when we're forgiven, all we have to do is confess, and then we're forgiven, that encourages people to go out and sin. They say and they tell us, and then I've been rebuked multiple times, that when I stand up here and I say to a young person, if you have been disrespectful, you've gotten involved with some type of wrong crowd, all you need to do is repent, ask God to forgive you, and he will. And the comments that I've heard time and time again is, well, then what you're doing, you're just telling those young people they can go out and do it again. By making it so simple, they get the idea that it's not that big of a deal. I disagree with that because it's not biblical. It's not biblical that you and I have to suffer for our sins. Jesus suffered for our sins. Now, it doesn't mean there may not be consequences. But if we understand truly what Christ has done, we don't have a desire to go back and sin some more. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. With what seems to be kind of a harsh illustration that would be really strange for most people to do. Donald Barnhouse who used to preach out in Philadelphia, he was in a, in a conversation with a college professor. A professor who was debating with him over the idea of how simple forgiveness can be. And so he told this story. Barnhouse relayed, a man had lived a life of great sin, but then he got saved, converted by Jesus Christ, and eventually, after a period of time, he came to marry a fine Christian woman in his church. He had confided in her the nature of his past life, in just a few words, but enough that she got the idea of how wicked he had lived. He, can, he goes on, um, as he had told her these things, the wife then took his head in her hands, drew her, him to her shoulder and kissed him and said, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and therefore I know of the subtlety of sin and the devices of Satan working in the human heart. I know you are a thoroughly converted man, and I know you still have an old nature. And I know that you are, as what you told me here today, not yet fully instructed in all the ways of God as you will be in the days ahead. And you still struggle. The devil will do all he can to wreck your Christian life. He will see to it that temptation of every kind will be put in your way. The day might come. Please, God, I pray it never shall. But the day might come when you will succumb to some temptation and fall into sin. Immediately, the devil will tell you that it's no use trying again, that you might as well continue on in that way of sin, and that above all, you are not to tell me because it will hurt me. John, I want you to know, right here in my arms, this is your home. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new nature. And I want you to know that there is a full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may ever come into your life. Barnhouse said that when he finished the story, the college professor lifted up his eyes reverently and said, My God, 
If anything could ever keep a man straight, that kind of forgiving love would be it. That's true. That is what God has done for us. God has given himself, and because we recognize our sin pains him so much, and that he is willing to forgive because it cost him his life, then we don't want to go out and sin if we're truly born again. We desire to put it off from us. But we know this, that if we fall and if we fail, he will love us because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let me give you another thought here. Our forgiveness is somewhat dependent upon our forgiving other people. You may not think that's true, but read with me the text once again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You look at this text, and it's really got a lot in it. And it can be challenging. So can forgiving others. Hey, today, part of our neighborhood night that's going to be set up within the hour, we're going to start setting up things. There's a dunk tank out there. The dunk tank is there so that somebody who volunteers can sit in it. Now, I'm not going to mention any names, but yesterday, one of our men who was here, and I won't, I won't tell you his name, initials on R, R and R. He's related to Joyce Reinheimer. Okay. His, her spouse, but I'm not telling you who, you know, his name. Rich suggested that what we should do with that dunk tank is we should move that dunk tank to the pulpit. He said people would really be more in tune with the service if you were in this dunk tank and we could be throwing balls at it. How am I supposed to deal with Rich from the future? What do I do with that? anger and that bitterness that is overflowing towards him right now. And then it gets worse. Deb Harner came by and said the same thing five minutes later. What do we do when people say things? What do we do? Should we bother forgiving them or should we say, Rich, you're in the dunk? Hey, that's an idea. <laughs> Listen, the Bible says that we're supposed to forgive. Can I give you several reasons why? Talking about forgiving other individuals. The Bible's really clear, not just from this text, but the Bible is real clear that the reason that we're supposed to forgive is, number one, it's, a, it's an evidence that you will have real salvation in your heart, that you are truly a born-again individual. Now, if you're not born again, this would be more difficult because you don't have the love of Christ that we read about a few minutes ago. But real salvation is talked about. If you look in Matthew chapter 5 and back up, he's talked about what do you do with your enemies, those who persecute you. And he talks about bless them that, that hurt you and attack you. Pray for them. The idea is forgiving them. And then he makes this comment that you may be the children of the Father. The reason that we can forgive is because we are truly born again. So he says, okay, why should you forgive? It's evidence of whether or not you're born again. I'll give you a second reason. A second reason. Because Jesus has done this to you. Jesus has forgiven you. Well, we understand and we know that it says in scriptures, he that says he's abides in Christ, he is abiding in Christ ought himself to walk as Jesus walked. In other words, we're to do what Jesus did. Well, here's what Jesus did on the cross. He said, for example, to those who were attacking him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We read elsewhere that Jesus forgave so many others who had offended him. So we read elsewhere in scriptures that we are commanded, be kind, tenderhearted one to another, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The idea is we're to forgive because we have been forgiven. 
Let's take it a little bit further. Not only is forgiveness something that shows real salvation, not only forgiving others is something that you should do because it's been done to you, but let me add to it this thought. Jesus expects this from you. Not only does he expect it, he commands it to be done. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to him one day and says, Lord, how often should we forgive? Now, in Bible days at that point, the, the typical church service, the synagogue service, would teach, if you forgive somebody three times, that is amazing. Well, that makes sense. Three strikes and you're out. Okay? So Peter says, oh, Lord. I am such a follower of yours. I am going to be more magnanimous than that. Lord, should we forgive them seven times? Well, surely this is just amazing. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. But remember what he answers? You're supposed to, you know, unlimitless, unlimitless time. You're supposed to forgive. You just keep on, keep on, keep on forgiving. Right after that, Jesus tells a story. The story I've given you the reference where it's recorded, it is an amazing story. Unfortunately, we don't get the full gist because we don't understand the economics and the terms that are used. So let me see if I can help you out. The story that Jesus gives is about a king who is going to settle accounts one day. He calls all of his subjects, the nobility, before him, and he's going to settle the debts. He calls one man before him, and the man that's standing before this king owes the king 10,000 talents. That means nothing to you means nothing to me unless I start doing a little bit of historical study and I find out this. That back in those days, one denarii was one day's wage. Take whatever you get for a day. That's the day's wage. That's one denarii. When we start saying, okay, one talent equals 10,000 denarii or 10,000 days wages. So now you're talking a number of years that you're working is in that idea of this 10,000 or this talent. But it wasn't one talent. It was 10,000 talents that was old. In other words, we're talking about 100 million days wages, or if we put it in our terms, 300,000 years of work. That's how much this debt was. Whatever your annual salary is, multiply it 300,000. How are you going to pay that debt? That is beyond this man's ability to pay it off. The king says, okay, to take care of this debt, you don't have anything, so I'm going to do what is very common in that day. I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell your kids. I'm going to sell your dog, your cat. I'm going to take everything, and it's going to at least apply to the debt. The man begs for mercy. He pleads, and he says, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Don't sell me. The passage reads these words. Moved with compassion, the king canceled the entire debt. Think about it. If somebody canceled your car payments, you would be, whew. Yeah, if they canceled your mortgage today, you would be elated. 300,000 years of debt. How would that man have felt? How should he have felt? What would you be feeling like? You're not going to jail. Not only are you not going to jail, he canceled the debt. Would you be excited? Would you do the Toyota click of the heels? Man, you would be, I'm sorry, you wouldn't be sitting like you're looking at me right now. You would be absolutely going bonkers and so would I. It would be so thrilling. The man goes out. The man leaves the king. As he goes out, he sees somebody 
who owes him money. He owes him 100 pence. 100 pence equals four months' work. 300,000 years of a debt, four months of debt. The man who has been forgiven, he demands the fellow pays him. He gets violent, says he grabs him by the neck. He's choking him. Give me my money. Give, you've just been forgiven 300,000 years of debt, and you want four months. And he's choking the man. The man says, the man who's being choked says the exact same words that that fellow had said to the king. Please forgive me of my debt. Please, please, please. He won't hear of it. You don't have the money? You don't, I'm, you're going into jail until the debt is paid. And the forgiven man puts the other fellow in jail. Now, Jesus continues the story. He says, other servants heard and saw what happened. They reported it to the king. They were so upset. I mean, seriously. Even, even the world would say, what a scuzz bucket. The guy is a crud, yes? And so they said, this is just, so they go tell the king. The king immediately calls him back and says, you wicked, you wicked, wicked, wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you asked me to. And you couldn't forgive something so small? Shouldn't you had compassion on this other fellow who owed you so little in comparison? For that, I'm delivering you to the tormentors. Amazing. Amazing, Jesus is concluding. The how could a forgiven person not forgive somebody else? You see, he commands it. He expects his servants to be as forgiving of others as he had been of them. If you sit here this morning and have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, he expects you to forgive others in the same fashion. I'll give you another reason. It's a display of real virtue, of real character. We read in the book of Proverbs the discretion, the wisdom, the character, the, the high integrity of a man defers his anger. He goes on, he says, it is glory to pass over transgressions, to not get so upset and so burdened and so difficult and so angry over things that have been done to you. In fact, there's a story that goes along with this that Colin Powell, any of you ever hear of him, remember him? Okay. General, for those young people that don't know, he was a, one of our uh, leading generals, helped with the Gulf Wars and things of that sort, and became the Secretary of State for a period of time, a diplomat. He talks about when he was in his early military career in Germany, he was a young lieutenant. He was put in charge of a group of men that they were supposed to go, and they were going to uh, stand guard for the day over one of the weapons that we have that are posted there, one of those mobile weapons in Germany. And they were to guard that because it had been moved to a certain spot. He said that as he was in the Jeep with the men and they were headed that way, he realized that his holster, the snap had come undone, and his pistol was missing. From a military perspective, he knew this was big, 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 big trouble. He got to where he was supposed to, and he communicated back to his superior officer, who he had just left minutes before, and he said and reported that he had lost his weapon. The uh, officer was just, how could you do that? Where is it? I lost it. If it's lost, I don't know where it is. And so the officer said, well, you know, we'll deal with it when you get back. So Powell said he did his thing 
He went back, and when he got to his commanding officer's tent, he walked in, and he said, he looked at me with a scowl, and he, he apologized, said, sir, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, so sorry. And the commanding officer reached down, picked up, and handed him the pistol. And relieved, he said, where was it? What happened? He said, wow, we found it. He said, some kids found it along the road, and they picked it up. And, you know, we got it before they shot one another, thinking it was a toy gun. Oh, man. You know, I'm really grateful that he says, well, we, we found, you know, we heard the gunshot. They did shoot it once, and then we went there, we got it. So Paul said, I was just absolutely relieved, but still terrified. And my commanding officer looked and said, don't let it happen again. He said, the big lesson came the minutes later. He said, I went back to my room, and I checked the gun. There had never been a bullet fired. It never happened. He said, I did some inquiries and later on I went back to my commanding officer to just get it straight. I never lost it on the road. He said that when I was in the office and when I was leaving, I had turned and it had fallen out and I didn't notice it right in the commanding officer's room. And my commanding officer could have had me in big trouble. But he used it, gave me a scare, something that I never forgot you know, to be more careful. But he said, I learned from my commanding officer who never reported it, who never went up the ladder, who never put it in my record, that there are times that what you do, it is a glory to overlook. There is sometimes greater character to let a lesson be learned without beating up somebody. You see, we go a little bit further, and we notice this. Forgiveness, you have to do it, otherwise Satan takes an advantage of you. We read in 2 Corinthians, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive. He says, I forgive it in that lest Satan get an advantage over me. Satan, if you're sitting here this morning and you have a grudge against somebody, Satan has a handle in your life. If you have a bitterness over something that was said about your kids and you have yet to get rid of it, it is there. Satan has a handle in your life. Satan has a foothold in your heart. If you won't forgive that classmate who gossiped or put something on the web about you, who made you look silly or, or whatever, Satan is getting a step hold. You've got to get rid of that. Listen, you've got to forgive for this reason. Failure to forgive breaks any close fellowship you have with God. Now, if you're born again, you have relationship with him. But if you're born again, you have to have fellowship with him, a closeness, a daily walk with him. You're his child, but you also need to be in real close communication with him. It's broken when you harbor and hinder, or harbor and, and keep a grudge or a lack of forgiveness, and it hinders his blessings. How do I know that because this passage in Matthew chapter 6 he says these words he says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors now go down to verse 14 he says if for if you forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you look at verse 15 if you forgive not men their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses and so he's making it very clear. Those who forgive find forgiveness. Those who do not forgive, for, they forfeit that forgiveness. That's the simple truth. If you are here this morning, you're angry with your spouse, you're angry with your parents, you're angry with a sibling, and you have yet to forgive them, your prayers are hindered. You, are, you cannot run to God and say, everything's honky-dory with me and God. It's not. There is a broken, severing fellowship with one person, a believer in Christ, then it's a broken and severed fellowship between you and God. So he makes it very, very clear. 
That if I regard iniquity in my heart, that lack of forgiveness, the Lord will not hear me. If you don't forgive, your prayers are wasted. So we read in the word of God that this idea of being right with one another is so important that Jesus encourages that we deal with it as soon as possible. In fact, let's go back in, in just a few minutes before Jesus spoke about the Lord's Prayer, back up to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he read, we read these words in that same sermon. He says in verse 22, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, an unjustifiable situation, you're ticked because it bothers you. You're upset because it inconvenienced you. You're ticked you didn't get to do what you wanted to do and you're mad at somebody they said something and you say to that person raka which we really don't understand it's just it's it's you know you dunderhead it's a cuss word or something that you're saying to tear this person down you're in danger he says you say fool you're in danger of hellfire if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has odd against thee. There's a conflict going on. And you've come to worship. Leave your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Do you realize what he's saying? He's talking to a group at this time in Galilee. There's only one altar in the entire land. That altar is down in Jerusalem. It takes two or three days to get down there and get to that altar. He's saying if you have made the trek down there and you've spent all that time traveling down there and you remember you've got a problem, go back home, take care of it, and then come back and finish your sacrifice. In other words, you go out of your way. You don't put it off. You don't, you don't pretend it doesn't exist. If there is this issue, you deal with it before you worship. Is that serious to Jesus Christ? And unfortunately, to many of us, it's not serious if there's conflicts between us. Or if there's conflicts between family members. It's just like, oh, well, that's the way life is. But it's not supposed to be that way for believers. We are not to live as the world with hanging on to grudges and anger and bitterness. In fact, dissect the phrase with me. Just this one phrase that he gives in this text where he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Watch. Watch when you take this one little phrase and see what he says. He's not saying that, okay, because we've forgiven you, forgive us our debts because we have forgiven our debtors. That is not what it's saying, that because I forgive, therefore God, you got to forgive me. He isn't saying you and I deserve forgiveness because, okay, you know, God, I've done something very heinous, something really big and really bad, and I forgave that person who they bumped me with a shopping cart. Therefore, because I was so kind to them, you've got to forgive me of my lying, my stealing, my cheating, my immorality. No, that's not what he's saying in this text. None of us deserve forgiveness at any time. It's only by God's grace. Thank God he's gracious. He is not saying in this text, that we are all of a sudden superior to God. Okay, God, here's how you, you're supposed to forgive. You do what I do because I'm the example. <laughs> That's not at all what he's saying. Father, forgive as I. God, you do the way I do things. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying in this text is very simple. Those seeking forgiveness need to grant forgiveness. That's the truth. That's the reality. You need forgiveness every day. You need to grant forgiveness every day. In fact, let's take it a step further. He is saying very clearly and literally by the verb that he used, an aorist tense verb in this passage, that before you come for forgiveness, you have got to deal with your grudges. That fits Matthew 5. If you come before the altar and know there's a problem, go deal with it before you finish the sacrifice. In this text, literally it would read this way. Forgive us our debts as after we have already forgiven our debtors. 
we've already dealt with it. Before I come to you, I've already dealt with the issue. I've already asked for their forgiveness. I've already, I've already gone to them and deal with it. In fact, let me take this, and I hope I'm not stretching the text, but I think there's some truth to this, okay, in this sense. Forgive us our debts in the beginning, in verse 12, as we forgive our debtors. We're going from a thing, the sin, to now the person. Okay, and in this context, I think what he's doing, he's saying this. He is saying, okay, if I am dealing with somebody who has hurt me, I am to have the right attitude, a forgiving attitude towards that person. I may not fully be able to undo the consequences of the deed done against me. 9-11. We forgive those who attacked in attitude. Is there properly consequences for those who would do us harm? Yes. Yes. That forgiveness doesn't mean we forget and we don't respond with consequences of protecting. But our attitude has to be, okay, God, we are not, we are not seeking to be vengeful. Somebody does something to you. They cause your child to go astray. The neighbors did not. The neighbors you live next to, they did not rear their kids with high morals. They help your child to choose to go astray. How do you do with that neighbor? What do you do with them? Do you attack their house at night? Do you put dog dung all over their yard? Do you spray the windows? You have an attitude of not bitterness and anger and revenge. But at the same time, you have to deal with consequences. I forgive you, but my kids aren't going to run with your kids anymore. I don't pretend that the deed never existed. I don't pretend there's problems anymore. Somebody steals from you. They go and they take something out of your house. They were... They were entrusted. They were your babysitter. They were somebody you, you thought was reliable. They, they come in. They've taken something. You forgive the person, the debtor. Do you ignore the deed? And say, oh, it never happened. Therefore, I'm going to let you babysit all the time. No, there's a consequence. You and I, in wisdom, would say, okay, I'm not going to have them be left alone. Why would I make that? If that's already a struggle with them, I'm not bitter, but I'm not going to have them. Should I take it to an ultimate to illustrate? They've watched your child and they've, they've done something to your child. Are you going to have them watch your child again? I forgive the debtor, but Jesus is not saying we ignore the deed that was done and not deal with consequences. And can that be done? Can we forgive the person even though there may be consequences? Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. A missionary we support that many of you know about, Alan Newton, last summer, was in Spain. He works in Portugal. He's in Spain. He's going into a, um, if you recall right, he's going into a mall. As they're walking to the mall, here comes a guy speeding in his car, and he's going over the speed bumps, flew over a couple of them. He came and was rushing through the parking lot, almost ran an older lady over, another lady with a... Um, yeah, um, not a car, but the kid's stroller, a stroller. And the Newtons. And Newton yelled at him and saying, hey, slow down, slow down. The kid parked the car, and as the kid came up to the building, Alan saw him and said, hey, listen, you need to slow down. You almost hit all these people. The kid, who was in his early 20s, got very mad. Went back to the car and got an axe out of the trunk. 
came running at Alan with the axe, yelling and screaming. Now, Alan doesn't speak Spanish, but he could tell by body language, this isn't good. (laughs) So he ran into the mall. The man chased him into the mall with an axe. Security guards came. They tackled the guy. They took the axe away, and the the kid went to jail. He finds out now, a few weeks later, that this kid grew up in a preacher's home. Okay? His parents are, are his, uh, his dad's a uh, Spanish pastor. And they've been praying for the son. And the son's been, you know, gotten himself in trouble before. They get to court, and when they're in court, things work a little bit different in Spain than they do in, the, in America. They get to court, and they found out, the family found out, that Alan is a missionary, that he's a believer. So mom meets him outside the door of the court. And she says, please, please, we are believers. We are Christians. We serve the Lord. You serve the Lord. And uh, we, our son, he's so sorry. He's so sorry. He regrets so bad. He's been in jail. He's, he's really has learned his lesson. Please forgive him. And Alan made the comment that you would have made. I, I forgive him. I forgive him. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. She went back to where her family was. And then, a few minutes later, the lawyer comes over. And the lawyer says, Mr. Newton, yes, I understand you forgive him. Well, yeah, I forgive him. You know, I'm not bitter over this. I forgive him. Thank you, Mr. Newton. I just needed to hear that. Goes back, tells the family, and Alan's looking over there, and they are so excited. They get before the judge in about 10 minutes. And the judge says, Mr. Noon, I understand you want everything dropped. He goes, what? You forgave him. Yeah, I I forgave him. That means we shouldn't do more. The case is going to be just, whoa, 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 whoa. What, What do you mean? She says, in our legal system, you're an American, right? Yes, in our legal system, if you forgive, it's as if everything is done. There's no consequences. So you forgave him, therefore, there's no penalty at all. He's going to be free to go, and there's no issue. And she looked at him and says, do you understand? He says, no. I mean, is there, does, does somebody say he needs to get some parole? You know, anything? Is there any consequence that is going to try to make sure there has been a change, an evaluation? No, if you forgive, it's done. It's as if it never, ever, ever happened. Okay? And so the judge looked at Alan and said, you're an American and you don't get this, do you? He goes, no, not quite. She says, well, that's the way it works in Spain. Okay? So he, she says, I'll give you five minutes to think over what you're going to do. What a spot. Okay? What a spot. Is that what we're talking about, forgiveness? We just pretend it never happened? Yeah, and it's so hard. This whole idea of forgiveness is so hard. Do we put the person in purgatory? Do we you know, punish them? And, you know, and so we're dealing with forgiveness, which leads us to this thought, okay, what exactly does forgiveness involve? What's involved when we forgive somebody? Here we go. Okay, let's see if we can define it this way. It literally means to hurl something away. That's the word. To hurl something, to cast something off. It is the idea of casting off the anger and desire for revenge. Okay, to the, you know, the hurt that you have, I gotta, they got to experience the same hurt. They said this about my kid. They said this about me. My spouse hurt me really bad by their lack of in, un, inattentiveness or their lack of, of honesty and integrity. So I'm going to do the same thing to them so they understand. My kid, they, did, you know, they lied to me, so I'm going to let them understand how bad it hurts. I'm going to keep lying to them so they get a feel for this. Um, no, 
No? Let me see if I can illustrate this way. Two, there was a group of American soldiers that they shared a tent in Korea. They had a Korean houseboy who would take care of their things. He would do some of their cooking, in fact, you know, when they wanted some extra things then from the canteen. And so they had this boy, but they teased him so much they would tie his shoe together. They would lock him out sometimes. They would play all kinds of games. They realized after a couple of weeks, this isn't, you know, it's, the kid isn't laughing. The kid's, you know, really, we got to stop. So they went to the little boy and they said to the little boy, they said, we're, you know, we're, we're sorry we did this. We aren't going to do it anymore. He says, really? You're not doing it anymore? We're not going to do it anymore. Good. Then I'm not spitting your soup anymore. Okay. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what we're saying. We stop. We don't do those types of things. Okay. We don't hold the hurt against the individual or stew or make them feel guilty over and over again. You don't bring up the hurts. This is forgiveness. We don't bring up the hurts over and over to them or to others. We don't rehearse. We don't replay. We don't, we don't drag them through the mud in our minds or others. We don't bring up their past. There was a family that adopted a little boy. He was an orphan boy. and He came from a real rough background, obviously didn't have much. And when he came in, the family said, we're going to show you what life is like and how well you're received. They had a party for him that evening. They had a meal. They went out and got him new clothes. But the dad in the family kept the pair of really, really, really bad shoes and put them on the mantel place. At first, everybody thought that was a kind of cool idea because that'll just, it's a token. It's a remembrance of where he's come from and how they've accepted him, except for that's not what the dad did with it. It was a couple weeks later that the little boy did something bad and immediately the dad blew up. Went and grabbed the shoes and holding up, this is where you should be. If it wasn't for my kindness, this is what you would be living. And berated the little boy and used the shoes as a means of making him feel so guilty. You don't deserve to be here. This isn't why you're here. To, you're supposed to obey me. You're not supposed to hurt me. And he just, he pummeled the little boy with these shoes and kept them there. And as the years went by, it was his tool of creating guilt. That is not the attitude we're supposed to have. What we're supposed to do is we're to have an attitude that says, I will respond with graciousness and kindness to those who offend. That means that I should probably shake Joyce's husband's hand in the future. Okay? Right? That means that you know, we look at situations and we say, let's, let's not hold them up against, against them. How? Let's be realistic for sake of time. How? How do we actually get over this forgiveness hurdle? Because here's the truth. Some of you sit in this room and this is so hard. Your forgiveness goes all the way back to a childhood experience of somebody doing something to you that was unmentionable. Some of you sit in this room and you've been deserted by a spouse or a parent. How do you forgive that person? Some of you sit in this room... And there has been others that have said things about you and they have soured and, and turned your friends away by saying things about you. Some of you are hurt because your parents, they didn't care. They didn't show compassion. They said things that cut to the core and even to this day it happens. Some of you are, are struggling with siblings that, yeah, mom and dad's in the one of them's in the hospital and they're dying and they went and heisted everything from the house and you got nothing left. No keepsakes. And that hurts. Some of you are struggling because somebody else said or did something about your kids or to your kids. What do you do? 
How do you handle those hurts? When they're real, when they're, they're there. They imply something that you don't care, you don't love. You've busted your back to minister to somebody, to help them, and they turn around later and they say, you just don't care. And it cuts to the quick. And it's hard to forgive. It's hard to forget. In fact, you don't even want to worship with them anymore. Not even sitting in the same pew. Not even in the same church. How do we get over some of those hurts? Can I give you just some practical thoughts to try to apply? It's not in your notes. Add this one. Take a realistic look at your hurt and anger you feel. Listen, I am not trying to diminish your hurt. Being deserted by a spouse, that hurts. I'm not trying to minimize that. Having parents who overabused you or overdisciplined, I'm not saying that doesn't hurt. Having had been molested, I'm not, I'm not trying to discount that at all. Having friends turn on you, that hurts. When at 13, 14, that's your life, your friends. I understand that. I'm not trying to diminish that, but I want you to think this through seriously. When you compare the hurts that have been done to you compared to the hurts you've done to Jesus Christ, your hurts to Jesus Christ cost him his life. He died for them. He died. He suffered hell for your hurts against him. He physically, spiritually suffered hell when he was on that cross. He could do it because he was infinite. And he was separated and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has hurt more than you have hurt. Let me rephrase that. You have hurt him more than anybody could possibly hurt you. And I'm not trying to minimize your hurts, but this is a reality spiritually. If he can forgive you, you ought to be able to forgive others. And does he understand how you feel? Absolutely. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be talked against. You and I did it to him. Number two, take your hurt and your grudges to God in prayer. You've got to go to God. You've got to seek his help to forgive. You've got to ask him to help you to forgive. That is, to not be bitter, to, to guard what you say and what you do. You need to reflect on his forgiveness, spend time with him. You have got to confess that harboring anger as sin and get forgiveness for it as well. You need to go to him. And do not excuse your harboring anger as just, well, everybody does it. You're a child of God. You're his son, his daughter. You and I are to be doing better. Number three, take your hurt and your grudge to the person who hurt you. Go to them. Go to that individual directly and privately. To them, not to others. Go to that individual. Let them know of the hurt. They may not even realize they did it. They may not even remember they did it. They may not know the damage that was done. Share with them your battle how you struggle. Enlist. Don't attack, but enlist. Ask them to help you with your struggle. Don't go and accuse. If you go and accuse and attack, they will just go on the defensive. If you go instead to say, listen, so-and-so, I'm really struggling and I, I could use your help. Nine out of ten times, if not more, that person will say, well, how can I help? And they will be open instead of you going and attack. Then pray together. Pray together with that person. Try to seal this thing, settle it by praying together. Give the person who hurt you a gift. The reason I say that is because of this passage. 
A gift given in secret pacifies anger, a reward in the bosom. It also pacifies strong wrath. Giving something that is precious to you, to that individual, can help be an act of love and can help settle this matter. According to the word of God, it helps your spirit. Bless that person whenever you find yourself bothered by them or their faults. What I mean by that is this. When you are being bugged by the situation of that person, pray for them. Pray for that individual. When all of a sudden you start thinking about them, they come into your sphere, speak complimentary and positively. Bless them before others. Change your attitude, your speech. Thank them. Compliment them. Say something positive to the individual to try to diffuse that spirit of anger in your own heart. Do something. Do something. Don't continue to harbor the hurt. The bottom line question is, you say you're close to God? Not, not if you're not forgiving. There's a story, it's a true story. It comes out of 2001. It was in the news. Fort Worth, Texas. A young gal, 25 years old. Gone out partying, did some drinking, did a few minor drugs, driving home. As she's driving home along the, the, dirt, uh, the road towards her house, she hits somebody, a homeless man. Flies up on the, wind, on the hood of her car, ends up lodging himself in her windshield. She is a panic. I'm drinking. I've used some minor drugs. I'm a nurse. If they hear about this, I will lose my job. She drives the rest of the way home with a man in her windshield. She parks the car in her garage. She leaves the man in the windshield and does not call emergency people. Two and a half days, the man is in her windshield, in her garage. She comes out periodically crying, please forgive me, please forgive me, you don't understand. I would lose my job. Uh, my friends would think less of me. The man dies because of the loss of blood. She hides the body. It's all found out a few days later. A few weeks later, it's all discovered. She goes to court. She gets 50 years in jail for what she has done. Horrendous. How could anybody, anybody, anybody be that callous? Especially somebody who said they're going to help people. How could anybody be that callous? Before I start throwing stones at this woman, I had to stop and ask myself this question. Have I ever run down somebody verbally? Have I ever trashed my kids and they are emotionally bleeding and out of my own pride, I'm too proud to say I've been wrong. And I let them just linger. Have you ever put somebody through a hard situation that was very damaging to them and you refuse? You refuse because it would be admitting you're wrong. You did something stupid. You don't want to forgive them. You don't want to make it right. God says very simply, the merciful shall receive mercy. The word of God says, you forgive and you'll be forgiven. You and I need to be forgiving.